Hello, I'm Andrew Fuller. I'm a clinical psychologist and work with children, teenagers and their families, particularly in the areas of resilience, learning strengths and well-being. I'm also the chairperson of Generation Next. And in this series of podcasts, I'll be speaking with people who are experts in their area in terms of mental health and well-being. Thank you for joining us and thank you for being part of the Generation Next podcast group. Thank you. And today I'm delighted to speak with my friend and colleague, Mark Nagel from the University of Sunshine Coast, Associate Professor Mark Nagel, who specializes in all things to do with learning and well-being and young people. But today we're going to talk about neuroplasticity. Ten years ago, Norman George put out his book, The Brain That Changes Itself, which really brought into the popular awareness the idea that brains can literally reconfigure themselves, not totally, but uh, partially, and that makes a major difference. And in those 10 years, I guess it's interesting to think about how that might basically have had a top-line effect into education, into therapy, into well-being. But before we do that, Mike, would you like just to briefly introduce yourself? Sure. Um, as Andrew said, my name is Michael Nagel. I'm an associate professor at the University of Sunshine Coast. Um, my main area of expertise is um, trying to learn as much from my children as I can. Um, but uh, no, my background is in educational psychology, child development and learning. Uh, I've written to date 16 books, roughly in, in those topics, and uh, very much interested in how we improve education systems to get the, the best environments for boys and girls alike. Thank you. And so my rough definition of neuroplasticity, would you like just to uh, elaborate on that, Martin? Sure. Well, I think the, the concept of neuroplasticity, as it says, Deutsch, when Deutsch's book came out to hit the mainstream, was this notion that uh, the brain is very malleable and, and can change based on uh, stimulus from the environment. And there's been a lot of uh, conjecture and, and speculation about what that might mean in terms of enhancing uh, educational environments uh, for children. Um, and clearly, there's been lots of research and uh, positive outcomes in terms of um, therapy and, and medical interventions, and particularly neurosurgery. But to date, I would argue that um, for schools in particular, they haven't really come to grips or, or truly understood what that might mean in the context of, uh, of educating young people. Hmm. So to put that in a bit of context, before George's book or that popular move, it was almost considered that the game was over by eight years of age, that the brain was set, and that was really all you, was going to happen ever. And so it was a major change in thinking, wasn't it, Mark? It, it was, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, you know, any, any education student goes into university uh, will look at the works of Jean Piaget and, and his um, seminal work on uh, cognitive development. And, and uh, even for someone my generation, when they were in education, we're, we're led to believe that on or about um, eight years of age, most of the hard work in terms of development was done. And there was some fine tuning, but by the time a child hit puberty, um, it was a done deal. Things were in place and there wasn't much more that could be done. So really one of the then peaks of neuroplasticity was obviously in the early years of life, but also in late childhood, early adolescence, it appeared to be, which then emerged into the middle schooling type movement, which has been so important, particularly where you are in Queensland, but around Australia and around the world. I wonder, just thinking about what the implications of that research are for education, do you have any thoughts about how it's trickled through or not in those 10 years? I think the key words uh, that you just mentioned are or not. 
I, I'm not convinced that uh, based on my experience and what I've seen, and, and uh, I visit a lot of schools uh, like you do as well, Andrew, and, and um, I work with pre-service educators. Um, and when I visit schools, uh, for all intents and purposes, I often say that you could walk into many classrooms today and they wouldn't be too dissimilar in, in structure and practice than the classrooms my parents uh, had entered. Uh, there might be far less direct instruction, but in terms of the actual actual day-to-day -day reality of working with kids, um, schools haven't changed all that much. And, and I, I, it's amazing to think that we're still talking about educating for the 21st century and we're 21 years into the 21st century and, and we still haven't got a handle on what that might look like. Yes, that's a, a concerning aspect, isn't it? I guess we're still really that idea of group-based education, take young people of similar ages, put them all together, and teach them in a similar way. I mean, we talk about differentiation, but I'm not sure that it's done that well generally in schools, differentiating to different brains. So I guess the capacity in the future is how do we then think about maximizing that research so we can kind of individualize or tailor to different brains. Do you have some thoughts about that? Well, I think that would take a major um, overhaul of the education system in general, because as you say, you know, we still separate children by age, which is more um, about governance and, and, and administration than it is about child development. Um, so, and in fact, if I'm not mistaken, the only other place where we separate children by age is in orphanages. Uh, but for the most part, um, you know, there's why, it's the only place on the planet, I suspect, if, you know, if you think long and hard where we expect an age bracket of individuals to be all operating in the same sort of, uh, same sort of way, and that's clearly not the case. And the other problem, I suppose, is we still, in educational context, um, are so focused on performance and standards um, that the policies around how to educate a child are premised on rankings and accountability, not on the individual need or strengths or challenges, for want of a better term, of children. So the research is telling us that no two brains are alike, that your brain is as unique as your fingerprint and yours is individual and mine is individual and everyone's is different. And yet this group-based performance and basically teaching then almost invites a sort of world of comparison where I should compare the performance of my brain with your brain and work out then who relatively is doing well. And of course, that's a recipe for anxiety, I think. Well, absolutely, and, and not least of which, too, is, I mean, there isn't a child development psychologist on the planet worth their salt that would say to you, boys and girls are on the same sort of playing field maturation-wise. In almost all areas of development, girls mature far sooner than boys. Uh, yet we will, you know, it, it's not uncommon for a three-year-old girl and a five-year-old boy to have the same vocabulary, uh, for want of a better term, and yet um, we have similar expectations for boys and girls. Um, in preschool or year one uh, based on chronological age and not any aspect of development, not least of which any aspect of neurodevelopment. And so really not taking on this research then means that we have uh, an increasing number of people who are the collateral victims of it, who see themselves as failures by not fitting up to a sort of norm, which really isn't real in the first place. Is that a fair yeah. take? Yeah, absolutely. And, and in fact, that's that's probably been a... Uh, a, a difficulty or a challenge in education for many, many, many years. I suppose the problem now is that given what we know about neuroplasticity, given what we know about neurodevelopment, um, there's a 
far greater amount of information than just say intuitive thinking 40 or 50 years ago. Given what we know, there are so many inroads we could make if we were really sincere about enhancing education outcomes and long-term outcomes for children and long in terms of education and well-being that um, the human brain tells us that we're just not enacting upon because um, we're so steadfast in our structure about what schooling looks like. And again, it, it, it hasn't, you know, 21st century education is not much different than 20th or 19th century education in terms of kids come into a classroom, they're, they're given a, a vast array of information and um, they're tested or assessed on it so we can have some measure of where they're at. And then we use that to compare, uh, which is highly problematic. And, and in the last 10 years in Australia and other places, but in Australia, we've had this regime called um, NAPLAN, which is um, a, st a standards-based performance measure that is, is, has probably done more to hold kids back than it has to um, actually enhance their long-term uh, potential. So hopefully in 10 or 15 years, this podcast will sound quaintly out of date. And hopefully, of course, some of the findings of neuroplasticity will have trickled their way in or surged their way into education. So I guess let's let's see if we can just have a brief speculative conversation about if that research was really taken on by educators. I mean, we can talk about mental health as well, because in some ways the, the two are parallel, but let's stick with education for the moment. What would be what would it look like? if you were tailoring education to individual brains? I think, and, and, and this is an important uh, concept for people to keep in mind, is that when we talk about individual brains, uh, we're talking about a vast, you know, the, the complexity we, we clearly don't quite understand yet. I mean, most neuroscientists would say we only know about 1% of what we'd like to know. But I, and so we, we can say with a degree of certainty that if you take a group of children um, there will be uh, some commonalities between them. But it shouldn't be uh, differentiated by age. It should be differentiated by uh, ability, interest, um, personality. There, there are so many measures that we can use outside of age that might say we could place uh, young people together in a context of learning and deliver a, a curriculum that is premised not on chronological age, but on, um, on what might grasp their interest and, and what they need to know about clearly there are some fundamental aspects of um, uh, literacy and numeracy and those things that kids need to get a grasp of. But I suspect more than anything, it, it, if, if we're, I, I would like to think if we're listening to this 15 years from now and looking back, we would see um, a seismic shift in how we structure the day and how we structure what goes on in a classroom and, and, and how we gather children together so that we're not doing it primarily based on performance and age. So if, I'm, if my memory is right, Jean Piaget, the child psychologist, when he went to the school in Switzerland, changed the symbol of the school from an adult leading the child to the child leading the adult, which mirrored, of course, the work of Maria Montessori. And in some ways, what we're talking about, I think, is in some ways honouring the shifts of those two great thinkers about how to educate children, that in some ways following the child's strengths and interests and capacities and building upon them is probably preferable to delivering a sort of one-size-fits-all, largely, type of education. I agree. And I think that the interesting thing, too, it, you know, if you, if you speak to most early childhood educators and people who work in Steiner schools or Montessori schools, they get it. They understand. They understand that. They know that. 
Um, and I suspect what happens though, and you know, um, the late uh, Ken Robinson was very, very quick to point out that, um, you know, he, he talks about, we don't educate kids into creativity, we educate them out. And his notion was that, similar to along the lines of Piaget, was that, you know, if, if we spend some time uh, really understanding what goes on in the minds of children and what they can tell us, and, and what they can demonstrate rather than set parameters around what they can deliver, um, that's a very different playing field. And no more is that apparent, I suppose, in, um, and I mentioned Montessori in primary school, but my experience has been in, and I've been in this game for many, many years on three continents is that, you know, as children get older, we, we actually um, separate them even more so. I mean, if you go to any secondary school, a, a, the, the comparison of a secondary school today, again, would not be too dissimilar to a secondary school in the 1930s, barring technology. There's still a lot of top-down delivery, separate kids by, it, it, we, we separate kids, students um, by subject matter. You know, so students arrive at school in the first period of the morning, they've got maths, and then they, they trundle off after a break and they go to geography, and then they, they go to history. And, and people in the maths department don't even know people in the English department. And so there's this, this constant um, atomistic structure of, of education where we, we separate things and nowhere on the planet do we are, are things separated like that in that nice neat little boxes and so there's so much that can be done by I suspect and universities are great for that too I mean we we, we are the the epitome of that so I, I think it has to be my view is that if you could take the sort of um, philosophies of early childhood educators and embody that through uh, secondary and tertiary education, um, you, would, you would start changing the structures of what, what transpires across all educational sectors. Early childhood educators, Montessori educators, Steiner engineers, they get it, they, they understand it. And if anyone is working with uh, an understanding of neuroplasticity, whether implicitly or explicitly, it's those individuals. Do you think this is creeping into the education of beginning teachers through tertiary institutions? In some, in some respects, it is. I, I think it's got a ways to go. I, I think the other thing too, and um, you know, coming from Canada, and I have uh, I have uh, family members who are educators there, and um, I have uh, former colleagues in universities uh, throughout North America. What I find is that there's this trickle down. You know, it's, it's very difficult. Um, to take research and and so changes in education happen at a sort of geologic time scale. You know, it's very slow. So taking research and, and implying that education is a long time coming. And what I've seen in my experience has been is that a lot of the changes that happen in Australia in some schools uh, started to happen, say, in, in North America and they've trickled down a little bit. So I have seen examples of changes in North America that are beginning to mirror the conversation we're having. Uh, but again, it's, I, I've seen schools where um, a beautiful school, uh, not far from when my sister lives in Canada, where they actually, um, the whole school is malleable. In other words, they, they, they move, they, they built this school, they structured a school where they can physically change the interior design of the classrooms at, at the press of a button. And so they move children around and they have um, eight-year-olds working with 12-year-olds depending upon what they want to do. And the teachers collaborate and the teachers talk about how can we get the best out of not only our eight-year-olds, but our 12-year-olds. And, and, and so that sort of communal environment um, embodies, I think, what really would, would get the best out of, um, of children, but also would be highly motivating for, for teachers who, 
genuinely, I mean, I always ask this question at the beginning of every semester, and it's going to come up shortly in the first semester. I'm, you know, of all of these people in my lectures here, I'm going to put a hand up there and say, I, I suspect many of you here wanting to work with kids because you like children. And, and I, I, I haven't yet to come across that individual who didn't put his hand up. Um, but yeah, which is a good thing, uh, or maybe they're, they're hiding. But at the end of the day, educators really, really like kids and, and they want to do best by kids. And I think, if, actually, I'll, I'll just go on the limb too. If, you, if we really wanted to change things, what, what we would do is ensure that um, our education ministers, state and federally, come from an education background. Uh, because that that would add a great deal to the conversation. So there's lots that can be done, but I do think I have seen examples of um, young teachers trying their best to embody some of the um, aspects of the conversation we're having, and and that's a good thing. And and again, um, one of the reasons I really enjoy, and I'm I'm a bit of an oddity because um, uh, you, you're probably aware, and, and some of your listeners would be that. You know, as you move up the academic food chain, the desire to teach undergrads diminishes exponentially. So many of my colleagues, not the least, but I, I really enjoy first year undergraduates because I think they're the future of, of change, not, not the bureaucrats or some of the people who've been in the game for as long as I have, you know, sitting operating schools the same way they have for 30 years and wondering why uh, we have kids who aren't doing very well or wonder why we have such high anxiety issues or, or children who are genuinely troubled by by life where, where school can exacerbate that. So thinking about just applying this research into education is a major task. And I sometimes speculate that just as we have a chief health officer in this country, we actually should also have a chief education officer who looks at the latest science and how that can be applied in our schooling. And I guess that requires a degree of thinking from the outside about a system that's been fairly robust in terms of resisting some changes across the time. So I want to, so obviously neuroplasticity ability to change your brain uh, is a remarkable advent of research and its application is yet to be seen. But I want to thank you, Michael, and I want to also honor the work that you do and the thinking that you do in this area, because it's so important for us improving the well-being of, of young people. So thank you for talking with us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. If you would like to follow up in further detail, please listen in to some of the other podcasts that we have made, which are available through the Generation Next website. There are also a series of books uh, from Generation Next in terms of nurturing young minds, uh, covering a series of issues to do with young people, and also in my own book, Tricky Behaviours and Your Best Life at Any Age, which are both available either on Amazon or through Bad Apple Press. Thank you so much, and I uh, hope to connect with you again soon. Thank you. Find more resources for supporting the mental health and well-being of young people on the Generation Next website. While you're there, consider becoming a member of the Online Learning Hub, where you can access practical sessions from leading experts on demand. There are many sessions available in the ever-expanding learning library, and each session has an instantly downloadable certificate of completion, which you may even be able to use to claim professional development. You can also feel great about your membership, with all proceeds supporting Generation Next not-for-profit initiatives, including this podcast. 
You may also like to read more in Generation Next Young Minds books. Both books contain practical and easy-to-read chapters on a range of topics from Australia's leading practitioners. Andrew Fuller's chapter, What is Resilience and How to Do It, is in the book Growing Happy, Healthy Young Minds, available on the Generation Next website at www.generationnext.com.au. We hope you found this podcast helpful. Please share this podcast and your learnings with others. Until next time, thanks for listening and for all you do to support young people and our communities.